So, <clears throat> we've been in the book of Ephesians. And the story behind the book of Ephesians is about as boring as they come. Um, while most of Paul's letters were written to a specific person or a specific group of churches in challenging circumstances, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus happened under really what are wholly unremarkable circumstances, at least on the part of the Ephesians themselves. There were no major quarrels going, there were no major heresies, and there were no major persecution at the time. The only real challenge for the Ephesian church was the day-to-day living in a wealthy city that was known for the worship of Artemis, whose temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and stood just outside of the city. Now, before Paul was placed under house arrest in Rome, which is about the time, by the way, that he's writing this letter, he lived in Ephesus for a while. In fact, this was about the longest that he actually stayed anywhere. And his ministry was so successful that the local economy actually ended up starting to suffer. See, many of the locals were blacksmiths. And because of the local temple of Artemis, they would create these little statues that people could buy. But when people started changing from their worship of Artemis to the worship of Jesus, the risen king, suddenly there's no business for these blacksmiths. And it actually at one point caused a riot started by one of the blacksmiths themselves. And what do you know, it's not too long after that, Paul leaves Ephesus for Macedonia. Now I say all of this by way of introduction. See, every book in the scriptures, every letter in the scriptures comes from somewhere. And while the origins of this book are somewhat unremarkable, the thing that's so important is that it's written by Paul to a relatively healthy church. See, Paul had seen many other churches in his time go through some very challenging things. Among others, the church in Corinth struggled with a very challenging cultural conflict, as well as the challenge of the pagan culture beginning to infiltrate the church. The church in Galatia had actually began to turn away from Jesus and also struggled with its identity as both Jews and Gentiles came to be together in one church. Paul had seen these and other churches, not to mention other leaders, go through very difficult and challenging circumstances and situations, but not yet Ephesus. And so I think Paul is writing this letter to them to encourage them to maybe preempt some of the things that he's seen in these other churches. He casts for them a big picture of the gospel in chapters 1 through 3. But now, beginning here in chapter 4, he turns a corner and he says this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. So what calling is he talking about? Well, if you had read chapters 1 through 3, you would know what he's talking about. Here's the short summary. We've been called children of God, which means that we've been invited to be a part of the church, which is Jesus' body here on earth. This body is holy, which means that it's been set apart for a purpose. And that means that we've been called to be a part of God's great rescue plan, to bring the cosmos back into a right relationship with God. We've been called to be part of the restoration and redemption and even the resurrection of the universe which is included but not limited to the human race, and bringing them all to new life. So this is setting up the whole rest of the letter, which means what it means to live out this calling. And so with that in mind, Paul continues. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, you weren't called to do this alone. This is about doing these things together, many parts of one body. In fact, together, Paul calls us the body of Christ, moving and working together rather than separately. Yes, we are different, but together, in spite of or maybe even because of those differences and our weaknesses, we are strong because God is strong and present and living and active. So he continues, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ generally, generously apportioned it. Guess what? Grace is needed because this is not an easy thing. In fact, Paul is saying you're all going to have a bit of a tough time with it. But while you must seek excellence, while you must seek and pursue the character and the activity of God, it sometimes will not be immediately obvious what that actually is supposed to be at any given moment. We will disagree with one another. Funny that. See, like we said, Paul has seen this in other churches plenty. He's seen the Corinthians and the Philippians and the church in Jerusalem and many others begin to fracture into factions in the midst of their challenges and in their arguments. And so Paul does not mince his words here about unity. He chooses not to talk about the church like an organization where there's officers and middle management and peons and the hierarchy, although we are to be organized. Nor does he say that we're a cause brought together by an idea or by our passion, although we should be passionate about our calling. Nor even does Paul choose to talk about this like a family or a marriage where we are brought together by relationship, although he does speak about it like that elsewhere. Here it's even deeper than that. Unity is like the parts of a body, inseparable and irreplaceable. If we choose to break that unity in our disagreement, it is like actually ripping apart a body, like removing a kidney or cutting off a hand. Actions that cause the body to cease to function properly. Now, by all accounts, at this time, the church in Ephesus was not divided. So even though unity is the default, it's a gift from God, Paul is trying to preempt any of that division Because it always comes, and he knows that we must choose what to do in the midst of our disagreement. He says that it takes work to maintain that unity. And that there are consequences to our unity if we don't keep our calling and our purpose in the forefront of our minds and practices. Let me say that again. Unity is not something we strive for on its own. We are to seek our calling first. And then unity comes along the way. Paul is saying that God's calling is for us as a whole, not as individuals. It matters that we're together, because without one another, we are not the church. So he continues. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, I love reading Paul because sometimes it feels like he's a little bit of a schizophrenic writer. 
He's in this one course of thought, and then all of a sudden he bounces over to this completely unrelated thought. At least that's what it seems like at first. But if we do a little bit of digging, we find that this is actually a two-part reference. In the city of Ephesus, you would find both Jews and Gentiles living amidst each other. And so what it's like he does is he takes a piece from one of the cultures, and then he takes a piece from another one of the cultures, and then he meshes them together to tell a bigger story. The first reference, his ascended, is a reference to Psalm 68, which is basically a very Jewish way for Paul to tell the story of the return of Jesus to heaven. But Paul was also very familiar with the story of Ephesus, home of the temple of Artemis. See, Artemis is said to have descended in a fiery cloud to the earth in great spectacle, a story with which the listeners would have been very familiar. But Jesus, says Paul, not only descended like Artemis, he also ascended again like in Psalm 68. And so together, Paul is using very clever, familiar language to talk about the incarnation in order to highlight that not only does God call us to live worthy lives, lives worthy of that calling, but that Jesus has already done so. Jesus came to earth. Jesus descended, giving up his power to become like the people he was trying to teach and love and serve. And Jesus sacrificed his life for humanity, enduring great pain and giving up his very life so that the world could live again. And so God exalted Jesus. Jesus ascended again. The descent is the example that we are meant to follow. Missiologist Alan Hirsch calls this embodiment, which is to give flesh to the ideas and experiences that animate us. We are to imitate how Jesus embodied the mission he was on. He didn't just tell us about it. He lived it. And so Hirsch says that if we are really to believe in this mission and value what God is asking of us, we must live the mission out fully. In fact, not much later, in Ephesians chapter 5, it begins by calling us to be imitators of Christ. Follow God's example, it says, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, the story of Jesus permeates the whole book of Ephesians as the way Paul says that we are to live out our lives. And that in living like Jesus, we live into the calling that God has placed on our lives. Now, a side note here. You'll notice that we've now completed the Trinity in this passage. Paul is saying that the work of the church, this calling that we're talking about, all comes from God the Father. So in verses 2 through 6, we hear about God the Father, the architect and the initiator of this mission. God is the Father who gets to set the priorities for the calling. But in the same section, we also hear about the Spirit, the one who enables the mission, the one who powers the mission, who holds it all together. So God the Father sets the priorities. God the Spirit powers and empowers the mission. But then here, God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the example that we are now to follow. Jesus is both the standard by which we act and the standard by which we gauge our success. So we continue, as Paul writes, 
So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So, God gives the priorities, the Spirit powers the mission, and Jesus is the example that we follow. But not only has Christ gone before us, Christ has also given us, as our example, the spiritual gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip us for that calling. We're not left to our own devices to figure this all out. God has provided the means by which we are to be the church on the whole mission of God. Paul says that we are to live lives worthy of our calling and then says that God has now provided gifts in our midst to equip us to then do that. And I want to camp out here for a second. So there's either four or five gifts, depending on how you play around with the Greek and depending on who you read. I'm going to go with five, just because I like to talk more about things. So the apostles, here they are, in in a very specific order, actually. The apostles. We heard about these a whole bunch last week. The apostles are the pioneers, the ones that do all the new stuff, often meaning things like planting churches, starting new types of ministry, but also pioneering understanding in theology as our world changes and new situations come up that we've never encountered before. Now, if you go through the scriptures, the apostles are always mentioned first. Even earlier here in Ephesians, back in chapter 2, Paul says that we are fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. See, the apostles are the ones who create the ability for all of the other gifts to work themselves out. Because without the apostles, there would be no gathered church body. It began with the disciples who followed Jesus around for a while and then Christ was resurrected and ascended and they became known as the apostles. They're the one who planted a brand new movement in Jerusalem and then beyond. But the gift is still around today. Every time we do something new, every time we, say, reimagine a service time or we start a fun run or we look to mission in Ecuador for the first time, you can bet that there is somebody in the mix using their gift of apostleship. Prophets. Now, it's not what you think. Prophets are actually concerned very little with telling the future. We're not talking about crystal balls or funny-looking cards here, okay? So don't worry about that. A prophet is one who looks very carefully at now. And the way that now measures up to who God says we are to be. And then the prophet calls us to become like that people. A prophet is basically a truth teller to the people of God. The prophets among us keep us on track. They're a mouthpiece by which God tells us what right relationship with him ultimately looks like. Now, prophets are often at odds with the culture, with the status quo. The status quo really frustrates a prophet. Because their eyes are always on this high calling that we've been called to. And they see the ways in which we could be doing better. 
They see the idols that we've made for ourselves. They see the way that our fear holds us back. They see the ways that we don't act in line with justice and mercy and grace. And that's, by the way, why they usually frustrate pretty much everyone else around them. Because they call us on it when we don't measure up. But as hard as it can be for us to hear a prophet, they are needed and necessary because Scripture says our calling is straight and narrow. And they can hold us in a way that nobody else can. Evangelists. So if prophets are the truth-tellers to the people inside the church, then the evangelists are the truth-tellers to the people outside the church. Evangelists are about telling the good news of the gospel to those that do not yet know it or have not yet experienced or accepted it. So not to be cliche, but these are kind of the recruiters to the kingdom of God. They're the ones that go out to the neighborhoods around them and tell people and help people see what they're missing about God. They help people see how God is already working in their midst. You might actually call them more like a spiritual tour guide. Showing people who have not yet met God where he is already working among them and then guiding them towards that right relationship with Jesus. Shepherds. Now I'm using the word shepherd here on purpose. I'm not using the word pastor because we in the Western church have done a little bit of disservice to this particular title. We've, in the Western church, tended to conflate all five of these gifts into the one title of pastor. But that's not what they are, and we'll hear that in a minute. But the text really talks about them like shepherds. It's a very specific leadership gift meant to care for a flock, as it were. Shepherds are the ones who care for and develop the people of God through mentorship, through discipleship, through nurturing, And when necessary, the shepherds are the ones who protect the people. Shepherds are the ones who develop the community of Jesus through relationships and through networking. Now, of all the gifts, I would be willing to wager that you are probably the most familiar with this one. Who has not been touched by an amazing shepherd? In fact, one of the best shepherds that I know is sitting right there. It is always a privilege to see Pastor Diane preach a funeral. To bring to living memory the person who has passed away and how she cares for all of the people in the midst of their grief and in the midst of their sadness. Teachers. Teachers are the ones who bring understanding to the church. Teachers are the guides, the instructors, the ones who help the church to understand God and God's mission in the world and how God can use each of us and can use us as a whole to fulfill the calling. Again, this probably feels like a fairly familiar gift to you because, let me tell you, we have some pretty fantastic teachers here at Bethany. So why these five? Well, Paul says that the fivefold gifts are given to God's people to equip God's people for the work of ministry. The gifts are not really offices. They're not titles. They're functions. They're about what the people of God are to do, who the people of God are to be. The caveat is that we don't get to decide if we have a gift or not. The gift is given, and we can tell that the gift has been given by the fruit that it bears. This is not something you can go to Walmart or Best Buy to pick up on your way home today. 
Okay, there's no Hallmark store where you can get your gift engraved. Okay? I don't get to decide if I have the gift of, say, prophecy. But if I am put in a place of helping the church to see a better path forward, then most likely God has given me the gift of prophecy for that season. Now, we're given these so that people in the church can be equipped. We're given apostles so that the work of God is catalyzed in one place. We're given prophets so that we stay within our boundaries on the straight and narrow. We're given evangelists so that the people of God are equipped to go and be and tell the good news outside of our church walls. We're given shepherds so that the people in the church are equipped to care for one another. And we're given teachers so that we all know what this mission of God is supposed to look like. So that we understand who God is and what he wants of us. These gifts are given by God so that we would be better at our calling. Which means that we are about being for something. And as soon as we are for something, then suddenly everything that we do together, our gatherings here on Sunday, our classes, our programs, our fellowship time, everything that we do together takes on a new meaning. It no longer matters if any of those things fit our preferences or our tastes or our palate. But what matters is that they aid us in living out the mission. See, they are not an end to themselves. It is the mission that matters. So as we grow in our faith, as we are equipped, we can move from, say, not liking that kind of music, or not liking that style of preaching, or not liking that interpretation, or not liking that group of people over there or over there, to better loving one another, to better learning from one another, to better helping one another both in life and in our walk of faith and of service. The goal is, Paul writes this, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. See, he's bringing back that unity piece again. Maturity as a faith community looks like bearing with one another in love, which is the fruit of the shepherds. It means not being deceived by bad teaching, which is the fruit of the prophets and the teachers. It means telling the truth of the gospel with a posture of love to those who don't know yet Jesus, the fruit of the evangelists. And it means growing in faith and size as a community, which is the fruit of the apostles. Church, the result is maturity. It's a rock-steady faith in a turbulent world, because one who is mature in God knows from experience that God's love bears up under everything. But if we don't experience real, genuine conflict, then our unity has not been tested to see if it's really unity or if it's simply a lack of disagreement. See, Paul has already seen that churches are unprepared for handling conflict in a healthy way, with their calling in mind. So those that are prepared will have a much better time staying together. See, if we never disagree, it means we're not doing anything of consequence, which means that we may have chased all the prophets out of our midst. 
If there are those among us who lack for care, or if our relationships have not grown, one may ask, where have all the shepherds gone? If we don't grow in our understanding, if God still seems like a concept instead of a living reality, it means that we probably have not been paying attention to the teachers. If there are no new baptisms, if there are none in our midst seeking Christ for the first time, it means that we haven't been listening to the evangelists, and we have not been equipped to love those who do not yet know Jesus. But worst of all, if nothing new or different ever happened, if there were never new struggles that we could overcome together, then the apostles left and we haven't been able to even call ourselves a church. Paul says that stability is not maturity. A church that has grown to maturity requires all five of these gifts, working together in harmony to equip the people to serve. Because in service, there is challenge and there is difficulty. But you know what? When we serve together in Jesus, those challenges are overcome together. The art of living a worthy life together begins with the humility to admit that we need direction to a change, to achieve full maturity, and to live out our calling. There is no shame in admitting that we don't understand some things. Because let's face it, it's true. It's why we need Jesus in the first place. We are fallen and broken. The good news, though, is that it doesn't stop with just needing it. Because Jesus is already providing what we need to grow. And all we need to do is listen as he speaks. Let's pray. God, today we step out of our places of insecurity, out of our habits of complacency, out of our infancy. Lord, help us to hear your voice calling from ahead, calling us into relationship, calling us into wisdom and truth, and calling us to share the good news with a world who needs it. God, as iron sharpens iron, help us to have the courage to engage in healthy conflict, that we may help one another grow. May we never shy away from caring for those in our midst. May we heed those who help us stay on the straight and narrow, and those that show us what it looks like. May we lean into the unknown, knowing that there are those already walking ahead of us to equip us. And so, God, today, help us to be the church, the body of Christ, which is the hope of the world. And so we pray this together as one people, one body, with one purpose. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen.